Good afternoon and welcome to the 214th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. Today is the first of three COVID calls special episodes in partnership with two great research libraries, the American Philosophical Society and the Linda Hall Library. These, two episode, these three episodes will explore challenges and changes for research libraries and the scholars that use them in the time of COVID. We will be especially interested in these episodes to think about the ways that library and archival materials in the history of science, technology, and medicine can teach us about COVID-19. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, February 3rd, 2021, there are 2,259,391 deaths globally from COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 447,852 deaths reported in the United States. That's up from 444,123 reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is, his life hadn't even started. Texas nine-year-old J.J. Boatman passes away from COVID-19 complications. This was written by Carolyn Vandergriff, published January 26, 2021 at CBS Local, Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas, Dateline, Fort Worth, Texas. A Texas family is grieving the unexpected loss of their nine-year-old son, who they say died of complications related to COVID-19. J.J. Boatman of Vernon, passed away at Cook Children's Medical Center in Fort Worth on Tuesday, January 26th. He was a loving, caring little boy, said his uncle Gabriel Ayala. Like every time he would see you or any family member, he'd run up and hug you. Just a few weeks ago, JJ celebrated his ninth birthday with tacos and cake. We never knew this was gonna be his last birthday, Ayala said. The little boy had asthma, but Ayala said it didn't stop him from being active and playing with his cousins or older sisters. He was just running around and playing earlier that day, and by the nighttime, he was yelling and crying to his mom that he couldn't breathe, said Ayala. His mom went over and his face was already, was blue already and his lips were blue. Ayala says JJ was taken on a medical helicopter from Vernon, where his family lives, to Cook Children's Medical Center. By the time he arrived, his lungs were filled with fluid. Ayala said the doctors told JJ's mom he died from complications related to COVID-19. She didn't know that she was going to come home empty-handed without her son, he said. That was her baby son. That was her only son. Ayala says it shows anyone can get the virus, and he hopes people continue to take the threat seriously as his family grieves for the little boy whose life was cut short. We're going to miss him his whole life, Ayala said. He's going to miss his whole life. His life hadn't even started. Wednesday, January 27th, CBS 11 spoke with JJ's father, Jason Boatman. You don't know how to live life anymore because everything's just literally changed. Everything has literally just changed when your baby boy is not ever coming back. Sunday night, he was as happy, hyper, lovey going self. Easy going self, JJ's dad said. I woke up that next morning to go to work. I could hear him wheezing a little bit, but he's had croup before, so I thought it was croup. Oatman said in addition to asthma, his son had autism and ADHD, but he said was otherwise active and healthy. Not long after getting to work, his wife told him their son woke up screaming, saying he couldn't breathe. She rushed him to the ER. They had done x-rays, and they say your lungs are supposed to be black when you do x-rays, but his were completely white, he said. AJ was flown from Vernon to Cook Children's in Fort Worth, and that's where the family found out he was positive for COVID-19. Next morning, the little boy's heart gave out. The hardest part was coming home and putting the key in the door 
and you open the front door, you're reminded of him everywhere, said his father. Try to really appreciate what you have. I mean, I know everybody does, but really take it to heart because it can be taken away within seven to eight hours like mine was. The family has set up a GoFundMe account to help pay for JJ's funeral. This obituary was featured on the Twitter account Faces of COVID. Okay, I'm going to turn to my conversation today. And the first thing I'd like to do is introduce my friend, Adriana Link, who came up with the idea and did the organizing work for these three special COVID calls episodes. Adriana Link is the head of scholarly programs at the American Philosophical Society. She received her PhD from the Department of History of Science and Technology at the Johns Hopkins University in 2016, where she specialized in the history of 20th century American anthropology. And she's currently preparing a book manuscript on the history of urgent anthropology at the Smithsonian Institution. Adriana, it's great to see you. Thanks so much, Scott. It's lovely to be here. And I'm glad that this program has finally uh, <laughs> come to fruition after much planning. We've been talking about it a long time. I was starting to think it was one of those projects you work on where the fun is the talking about, I say fun advisedly in the COVID context, but we've had some great discussions about putting this together. I'm glad we're finally able to do it. Likewise, and good to do it with a fellow Hopkins uh, graduate. Um, I just wanted to say a couple words before we turn it over to our discussants about um, some of the thinking behind uh, this curated series of discussions. Um, and, and I wanted to say that, you know, while we'll be talking about uh, the history of science collections and, and featuring perspectives from, from researchers, from former fellows, and, and also library directors, um, I wanted to think about this opportunity not just to reflect on the impact of COVID on libraries and archives, but also to think about what libraries and archives can teach us about COVID-19, uh, and especially re related to questions uh, of access, of archival practices, uh, and the way that these repositories might serve different audiences, uh, both now and, and as we continue to think about these questions in the future. Um, so I couldn't think of a better way to start this series of conversations um, than by hearing from the heads of, of two uh, uh, institutions that have really robust uh, holdings uh, in the history of science, technology, and medicine. And those institutions are, of course, uh, Linda Hall Library and my own institution, uh, the American Philosophical Society. So I'm especially grateful um, that uh, Linda Hall's president, uh, Lisa Brower, and uh, Patrick Spiro, the librarian and director of the Library and Museum at the APS, uh, could be here today and could get us started in facilitating this discussion. Uh, and, and I hope to continue the themes started today um, with tomorrow's conversation, which will feature uh, Robin Wolf Scheffler and Joanne, Joanna Radin um, talking about their experiences uh, researching both at the APS and at Linda Hall uh, and their work on the history of biomedicine and biotech. And then to wrap things up, uh, we'll be talking with two um, APS fellows who have the unfortunate luck of uh, finishing up their dissertations uh, about healthcare during the pandemic. So join us on Friday uh, with Nicole Schroeder and Andrew Seaton. Um, if you haven't already done so, I encourage you to check out the APS's website to learn more about this series uh, and about our upcoming programming, as well as to learn how to connect with our collections. And um, our website address is uh, www.amphilsoc.org. Uh, and with that, I'll turn it over to Scott, uh, Lisa, and Patrick. Okay, Adriana, thank you for, for that. And um, tomorrow, I hope you'll come out at the beginning. We can talk, a, a chat a few minutes before uh, the talk with Robin and with uh, with Joanna tomorrow. It'll be great to, That'd be to great. catch up with you then. Okay, thanks. Okay, let me introduce my guests for the conversation today. Lisa Brower was appointed president of the Linda Hall Library of Science, Engineering, and Technology in July 2008. And prior to accepting this position, she was university librarian at the New School in New York City from 2002 until 2008. Lisa previously served as the Brooke Russell Astor Chief Librarian for Rare Books and Manuscripts at the New York Public Library. In 1996, Lisa was named the third director of the Lilly Library at Indiana University in Bloomington and the first woman to fill this position. And she served as the Lilly Librarian for six years until 2002. She's currently the chair of the Independent Research Libraries Association. 
My second guest is Patrick Spiro. He's a librarian of the American Philosophical Society and a historian of early American history, who specializes in the era of the American Revolution. He's the author of Frontier Rebels, The Fight for Independence in the American West, 1765 to 1776, which appeared with Norton in 2018, and Frontier Country, The Politics of War in Early Pennsylvania, which appeared with Penn Press in 2016. He's also the edited editor one of the editors of the edited anthology, The American Revolution Reborn, New Perspectives for the 21st Century, which also appeared with Penn in 2016. Prior to his appointment at the American Philosophical Society, Dr. Spiro taught at Williams College, and he received his PhD from the University of Pennsylvania in 2009. Lisa Brower and Patrick Spiro, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thank you, Scott. Good to be here. I'd like to start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation is there today. Lisa, let me start with you. Well, at the moment, I'm in my home in Leewood, Kansas, which is a suburb of Greater Metropolitan Kansas City, Missouri. Um, the situation here is we are pulling out of the third wave. Uh, we were in quite a bit of a spike after the, the holiday season. And that was really the third wave of infection. And the infection rate uh, here, probably per capita, rivaled anything in larger metropolitan areas. So that was very troubling. Um, but things are getting better. The incidence of hospitalizations is beginning to go down, as is the incidence of uh, new infections reported every day. So things are looking up. The big concern now is, as it is everywhere, a shortage of vaccine a demand that far outstrips the the uh, supply of vaccine that's been allocated to us. Do you have a handle on that? Any sort of a sense of how the state is prioritizing who gets that vaccine? Well, Missouri has its own priorities. Kansas has its own priorities. And where I live in Kansas, they put out a uh, notice that anybody over 65 can get a vaccine, but don't call us, we'll call you. And uh, so right now they're vaccinating after they took care of the first responders and medical personnel, which was absolutely the first wave. Um, they're vaccinating people 80 and above, if you can get an appointment, because again, it's, and I was just reading about this in the New York Times about the problems the elderly are having getting online, getting appointments, getting up in the middle of the night to try to you know, not get kicked out of a website. So those problems are here on a somewhat smaller scale. But um, we're doing what we can, and, and every doctor keeps saying, just pack your patients. You know, we will get to you eventually. You just have to be patient. And in the meantime, practice the best preventative measures that, that have been prescribed. Patrick, where are you located right now, and what's the situation there? I'm coming to you from Library Hall uh, at the American Philosophical Society, just off uh, Independence National Historic Park. Uh, we're a few uh, feet from Independence Hall, where the Declaration uh, was signed, the Constitution uh, written. Um, so I'm in Philadelphia, Scott, and uh, as a as you're a disaster historian with a foot in Philadelphia. So in some ways, I think you probably know how the situation's going in Philadelphia better than me. But from everything that I've read, uh, it, it's pretty close to being a disaster right now um, in terms of uh, vaccine rollout. Um, and like Lisa, uh, the numbers uh, seem to be uh, at least uh, plateauing and, and going down. Um, I think we've probably all seen that that's a, a national trend going on. And I know I read in the New York Times uh, this weekend that there's a lot of speculation on what, why that may be. Um, but I think it, that's a, a sign of good news. Uh, but here in Philadelphia, the vaccine rollout has been um, very rough. Um, uh, there is uh, some missteps by the city government and their partner um, that we're, uh, the city is now trying to rectify so that we can start getting vaccines out and. Scott, I think you probably know a lot more about the de details on that than me, but that's the gist. Yeah, that's that's a story we're going to hear be hearing a lot more about, I think, in the in the weeks to come. And, and you know, this this disaster has had so many different acts to it. And now all of our conversation is taken up with with vaccine uh, and, the, and the discussion of the vaccine and vaccination. But, you know, one of the reasons I was really excited to talk with both of you is that the institutions that you run have really had to adapt to every phase of this pandemic. And I think sometimes we forget how many phases we've been through, you know, becoming aware of it, the, the closing down of institutions, the possibility for new openings, reopening in the summer and through the fall, and then what we're facing now. So 
you've got kind of the big the big view of it from your institutional perspective. And I want to dive into all of that. But before we start, I kind of wanted to give you a sense, a chance to give listeners and viewers a sense of, of your institution that you direct. Um, people have heard of Linda Hall Library, if they've heard of the American Philosophical Society, maybe they've never had a chance to do any research there. Tell us if you would, and Lisa, I'm going to start with you, just a little bit about it, about why you love the institution. Maybe point to one or two things that are in the collection that you really get excited telling people about. And then Patrick, I'll come to you with the same question. Sure. Well, compared to uh, APS, we are a brand new institution. We are coming up on our 80th birthday. The library was established by virtue of a bequest um, made by Herbert Linda Hall, who were two wealthy and very philanthropic Kansas Cityans. And the library was a great expression of, of civic philanthropy on their part. They were childless and wanted to leave something behind um, after their deaths. And they left um, their estate, which was 20 acres, and uh, their home, as well as an endowment to create a library for the people of Kansas City, Missouri. However, by the time they died, there was a, a public library. And so the um, Board of Trustees decided that this library ought to be devoted to science, engineering, and technology to spur um, commercial interest and investment in the area. And uh, as a result, 80 years later, Kansas City is a hub for major engineering firms and other uh, technology enterprises. So it was very uh, prescient of the first board of trustees to do that. So over the years we have grown, we are now, we occupy a footprint of 200,000 square feet. So it's very easy to socially distance be socially distant in our, our building. Um, you can go <laughs> days without seeing other people. Anyway, um, the collections also have grown and they have shifted to mirror the times. We have a history of science collection that begins in 1472 and comes up to mid 20th century, but we are also very much a contemporary library and we can uh, we collect contemporary materials having to do with science, engineering, technology. Some of these materials actually circulate so on one hand, we are a closed stack research library that is very committed to a research mission. On the other hand, we are a circulating collection that is here to serve um, our local and regional community um, as they may see fit. We also maintain a very robust public programming presence and we regard that as the outward expression of our collections. It's the way we make our collections available to people who may not actually have a need for the printed word. And I could go into much greater detail, but I'm sure Patrick wants to talk about his institution as well. Well, Patrick, let me let me bring you in. I, I love hanging with people who are historically minded too, because they say things like, oh, we're a very young institution, only 80 years old. Patrick, tell us a little bit about the American Philosophical Society. Yeah, no, uh, our, our history is a, is a little longer, um, uh, but I will try not to speak uh, for too long about the history, because I know there's a lot more that uh, you want to cover, Scott. Um, we were founded by uh, Benjamin Franklin and a group of other civically-minded individuals in 1743 uh, with the mission, which is still part of our, our title, uh, to promote useful knowledge. Um, the, American, the American Philosophical Society's full title is the American Philosophical Society held at Philadelphia for promoting useful knowledge. And uh, we do this in a number of different ways. Um, we elect members in all different disciplines after a career, uh, a distinguished career advancing knowledge. Um, we uh, hold a series of meetings and conferences in which people come here to Philadelphia um, to share the latest uh, cutting-edge research uh, in all different fields. And of course, that's now turning more and more virtual um, in, in the midst of 2020 and 2021. Um, we also have a publications program, uh, one of the longest continuously operating uh, presses in North America. Um, and we also provide over a million dollars of research grants every year, about $1.2 million, in fact. And that's for folks to go out in the field and conduct research, again, in all different fields, but also to come here to the research library to conduct research. And the, the library itself has over 14 million pages of manuscripts and over 300,000 bound volumes. It dates to that very early period when early members were trying to collect a science library that others could learn from, and it's continuing to grow. Um, we now have uh, the collections of, of uh, seven Nobel laureates, um, collections that relate to over 650 different native communities, and an incredible collection documenting the early national period of uh, the United States. Um, and, and you asked about some of our favorite uh, um, 
items in that collection. And I thought I might mention a few that, that relate, I think, in some ways to the moment we're living in. Um, uh, the first is, uh, you know, Franklin um, was somebody who was at first suspicious of inoculation. Uh, but then as he learned more and studied the data, his opinion changed and became one of the great advocates for the inoculation in smallpox. And in fact, he lost his son to smallpox, not because he was opposed to it, but because he couldn't get his son um, the, the vaccination in time. But that really was a transformative experience where he became an advocate for uh, inoculation. You have this incredible letter from George Washington writing in the midst of the American Revolution, giving orders to inoculate the troops, which proved to be a decisive uh, decision in helping the American cause defeat the British. This was in the midst of a smallpox epidemic, and he was able to inoculate his troops to defend them against that hidden enemy. Uh, and then most recently, our, our uh, Nobel laureate, uh, Barry Blumberg, Baruch Blumberg, um, identified the hepatitis B vaccine. We have his papers, over 700 linear feet, and that discovery led to a vaccine that has saved millions of lives. Um, so when I've been thinking about the, the pandemic in our collection, there's so much of this history that's, that's embedded in our, in our holdings. Uh, thank you both for sharing your enthusiasm, really comes through both of you listening to you talk about these. And as, as a historian, I could really sort of listen to you talk about all these collections all day long and be perfectly content, partially because I haven't been in an archive in so long. And I'm really desperate to get into one. And I guess with that, um, and I know you hear from researchers all the time who are probably pestering you as I'm about to, when can we get back into the physical space? But let's, let's roll it back a little bit. Lisa, let me start with you to late winter, early spring, COVID-19 is a distant thing. And then within a very short period of time, it's not. Walk well, us through the decision-making process as you were starting to cope with that early on in the pandemic. Quite honestly, the decisions were foisted upon us. And, and when you talk about a short amount of time, I'm talking about six hours. Um, because uh, I believe the mayor of Kansas City, Missouri ordered a shutdown. I can't remember the exact date, but it was maybe Friday. If Friday may have been March 19th. I can't even remember at this point. Um, but anyway, that morning I, I had a meeting of my senior staff and I said, you know, this COVID thing, I just have this feeling we may have to shut down on fairly short notice. And I think you ought to begin assembling some work from home projects for your for your staffs. And that was it. Now I had a series of meetings all day in one room, which is not a skiff, but it might may, may just as well be. There's very bad Wi-Fi transmission. And I was in this conference room all day having a series of meetings, got out about three o'clock, and my chief financial officer said to me, you know, the Nelson Atkins Museum just made the decision to shut down. And mm -hmm. the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art is the biggest museum in Kansas City. And so if the big dog goes down, it's like all the dominoes were going to fall right after that. And I said, why? And she said, well, the mayor of Kansas City is going to order probably on Monday a citywide shutdown. Well, between 3.30 and 5 o'clock that afternoon, every single museum and library in Kansas City announced that as of 5 o'clock that day, they were closed to the public for the foreseeable future. So when I say a period of about six hours, I meant it. And uh, I called my staff back in on Monday and Tuesday of the following week because we needed to make plans. People had to be sent home with equipment. Mm -hmm. Not everybody had a laptop. Not everybody had, you know, stuff that they could travel with. So we had to figure out who needs what, who needed a mobile hotspot because they didn't have internet connection where they live. And we had to get all of that figured out in a very brief amount of time and just send people home. And, and that happened in a period of about a day and a half. And by Tuesday noon or so, I was standing on the loading dock waving goodbye to the last staff member to, to pull away from the library. Um, and from that moment until mid-July, we were the Linda Hall Library in exile. We kept the work of the library going. We had an opportunity to tend to projects that had been long backburnered that could be done in a virtual environment. So our attitude going into this was, let's not let a crisis go to waste. Let's pull something good out of this. And we pulled a lot of good out of a very big misfortune. Um, and I mean, I can talk later if, if you'd like me to about um, everything we did to keep safe, because I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that with the exception of one person who got sick over the holidays, nobody else has gotten sick. Um, we have had a completely COVID-free staff and we 
we're working hard to maintain that. So um, we pulled a lot of good out of, of adversity and I'm, I'm proud of my staff for doing that, but it just whipped everybody's heads around. We, we all felt really whipsawed by it and it took a toll on all of us, I think. Well, I'm really I'm happy to hear that you've only had one staff member that's been that's been sick. And just to go back to that moment, I mean, that's a remarkable story. I mean, such a short period of time to close down. And did you think, because I remember at Drexel, I mean, the idea was, well, we're going to we're going to close down. But it was so open ended at the beginning. And I, you know, you'd have these conversations and people say, well, we'll be back in two weeks. And then you had people like me who was saying, yeah, we'll be back in the fall of 2021. Nobody wanted to hear that. But um, what were you what were you thinking at that time? In terms well, of the mayor, the mayor did uh, issue a shutdown. I believe it was through April. And as as the weeks ticked on, I, I privately thought, no, we're not going to be back in April, maybe the end of May. And we got to the end of May and I thought, eh, maybe not. And the city started to open up slowly. Um, but all of the cultural institutions were were on their own timeline and some of them opened up in late May uh, as the city was opening up. We reserved the right to have a phased return. So we took a bit longer. And one of the reasons we could do that is we are a free library. Nobody has to pay a dime to get into the Linda Hall Library, whereas most of the libraries, uh, excuse me, most of the museums in Kansas City uh, depend upon paid admissions for an important revenue stream. And so they were under a great deal of pressure to begin to reopen, to recapture as much lost revenue as they can or as they could. Um, we did not have that pressure, so we could we could drag it out a little bit more. And I started to tell my staff, maybe just maybe by the end of June, we can think about going back. But we also had the luxury of time to plan to phase in all of our safety precautions and to make sure people had achieved an appropriate level of comfort. I didn't want anybody to think that they were in danger of getting sick before they, because they came to work. Patrick, let me bring you in on this, kind of the same question, just in terms of when COVID entered your consciousness and how you started thinking about what the shutdown was gonna look like. Yeah, I'm actually uh, hearing uh, Lisa's uh, reminisce, you know, very similar uh, experience, especially in terms of, you know, how, what we've been able to accomplish in spite of it all. Um, and the way that we've been able to, in many ways, uh, serve our collections remotely and make things more accessible, um, both remotely, but also when we are able to reopen, I think our collections are going to be in a better condition than they ever had been before. Um, but hearing, um, uh, you know, Lisa talk and, and your comments, Scott, it, you know, the, the most challenging thing for me, at least, um, has been thinking ahead. Um, making decisions about the future. You know, the decision to close was, as Lisa said, kind of, it was March 13th, a Friday, and everybody else was closing, and there were all these orders to close, and, you know, you knew you were closing, but when you're trying to make long-term plans and decisions, um, that has been the biggest challenge, uh, I think, for us. Um, do we, you know, we try to hold in-person conferences. We need to plan for those. Those take a year of planning before you can even hold them. So when we start thinking about, you know, the fall of 2021 or the spring of 2022, what are people's appetites going to be? Do we want to start investing resources to hold conferences? You know, do we want to start in having people go through this, you know, all the effort to reopen only to realize we've done all this effort and we can't reopen because we are uh, open right now. So, you know, it's, the decision-making uh, and long-term planning has been, I think, the biggest challenge after closing for, for me, at least. remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls and we're having a special conversation in partnership uh, with the Linda Hall Library and the American Philosophical Society. And I want to remind folks you can get questions in today for Patrick Spiro and Lisa Brower. If you want to, if you're watching on YouTube, you can just put them in the YouTube live chat and we get them that way. Or you can put your question up on Twitter. Just be sure to tag me at US of Disaster and we'll get those, those questions in. Um, Something you both said, which I want to kind of shift and talk a little bit about now, is how you adapt your model of serving um, 
you know, your patrons. And just speaking from the perspective of a researcher, you're planning a book or even writing an article. Um, yeah, sometimes we'll make a visit to a research library because we want to go in and see what's there, or we want to see if there's some museum, you know, pieces there or something like that. But a lot of times there's a lot of planning that goes in. And if we've got a book, we might have a schedule planned pretty tight, you know, a couple of weeks at Linda Hall Library, a few weeks at American Philosophical Society. For those who have busy research and teaching schedules and home lives, it can get a little hectic. And now all of a sudden, the researcher can't get into the archive. So that's just one of many things that I know both of you have had to think about in terms of patron services. So let's talk about that a little bit. Patrick, let me bring you in on this first. Some of the adaptations that you can tell us about how you've met researcher needs at this time. And then Lisa, I want to ask you about that as well. Sure. Yeah, no, and, I, and once we shut down, you know, people that work in research libraries know how important our work is. Um, we are not just the stewards of the past, our shared past, um, but we're also active sites of research. You know, I, I like to say, you know, whenever everyone was talking about all the laboratories that were shut down in the sciences because, you know, you know of the closure, research libraries are really the laboratories for the humanities. Um, you might walk into our reading room and it looks like people are just sitting there reading old documents, but what they're actually doing is making discoveries and those discoveries they share with the rest of the world. And so when we shut down, you know, those discoveries um, were no longer happening in the way that they used to. And in some ways, just like a, a graduate student in the sciences has to have lab work in order to complete their doctorate, so many students and scholars and researchers you know, really depended on access to our materials to advance in their career and in their lives. Um, and so our shutdown, we realized, had a, a major impact on a lot of folks who had been uh, you know, really relying and expected to rely on our collections. So of course, we, we tried to uh, switch uh, as much as we could to um, a, a virtual uh, environment. Um, we increased the amount of reference uh, we provided. We increased the amount that we digitize. Um, we now have over uh, 250,000 images uh, digitized in our digital library. And if you were to look at our graph, it's, it's gone up dramatically after the shutdown precisely because we were trying to invest in more collections. Um, we had a fundraising uh, drive that was very successful in order to uh, uh, do uh, expanded digitization work. Um, and we're now looking at remote fellowships. I mean, fellowships are one of the key ways to have scholars uh, access our material. These are provide funds for uh, uh, scholars who might need the resources to travel and spend a month in a, a, you know, a foreign city. Um, they haven't been able to do that. So now we're trying to turn these into uh, virtual fellowships in which we're able to digitize the collections they need and also try and involve them in the greater intellectual life around our library. Um, so really a lot of it has been moving to uh, digitization and increasing access mm -hmm. that way for us. But just that, that last part you're saying, just so I'm clear. So, I mean, there's digitization and researchers are used to that and they hope that the collections that they want to use are being brought online. But you're actually describing something a little more different there with a, with a fellowship, with a fellow who might find certain materials they want to use and, and your staff is going to take the step of making them available. Yeah, no, it's kind of digitization on demand. Um, we had done that, we had done remote reference before, but there's been a dramatic spike. Uh, we had to allocate more resources towards that. And then this remote fellowship would be an entirely different type of fellowship. What I'm personally interested in, um, we're trying to figure out how to make that work. Um, you know, a fellow receives, say, $3,000 for a month. Now they can reallocate that towards mm -hmm. digitization. And what my big question is, and I, I mean, time will tell, is whether or not we're able to digitize um, more in, with $3,000 than they would be able to do in person. Uh, for 35 hours a week for uh, four weeks. Um, there's so much you, you would lose by not coming in person, but I just wonder in a sheer amount of material you can get if we're able to do, if they're able to get more material by paying for digitization. Lisa, let bring you in. Same question and anything that Patrick said too that you wanted to address. Let's, let's talk about it. Sure. Um, I, I'll get back to the virtual fellowships in a moment, but one of the things I neglected to mention was um, at, at the moment we shut down, we were less than a month into implementing our first year of a three-year strategic plan, uh, the purpose of which is to bring more people into the building, um, either through research or through our public programming effort. So that was another thing that we quickly had to recalibrate in our public programming was almost instantaneously moved on to a virtual platform where it enjoyed unprecedented success. And um, I think that 
virtual programming will be in our future, even when we're back in to the building. We are in the building now, but when we can welcome the public back into the building in large numbers, uh, we will still be doing some form of virtual programming. So th there's that one thing. Um, I will say that the Linda Hall Library has always had a history of providing material virtually to a lot of scholars because, you know, we're in the middle of the map and, and some people have an easier time getting to us than others. So we've been in the business of providing um, digital materials to people for a long time. When we shut down, um, we had, I think we had a few fellows in residence and we said, we're sorry, but we're closing and we'll be in touch. And we helped them through the balance of their fellowship uh, with, you know, as much free digitization as, as they needed. We also gave them the opportunity to put a pause in their fellowship and perhaps come back to finish it when, when it was safe to do that, if their research schedule would accommodate that. Um, we still have some obligations to outstanding fellows and some are coming to do research here uh, in a very well-planned manner. Um, but some have opted to convert their, their trip here into a virtual fellowship. And because we were having so much success with that, we pulled the trigger on the decision fairly quickly that for the round um, to come, we've just closed applications for that round, 100% virtual. And I think Patrick, you raised a good point about how much uh, will $3,000 buy in terms of digital production. Uh, I think we're all eager to see how that, that question gets answered. Um, this will be an experiment for us to see how 100% virtual fellowship opportunity goes, but we're part of our strategic plan is to experiment and you know, modify our successes and, and amplify our successes and things that were less successful, see how we can fix them and make them better. Um, so I would say that you know, life changed for us uh, in the way that we provide service to our readers, but not the quality of service and not the uh, amount of service. I, I think we are still providing the same high quality service that we can to the people who, who use the library. The one thing I will say that, that I find really um, disappointing is that the one thing you lose in virtual scholarship is the serendipitous discovery. Um, ha winding up in the reading room with another scholar who may be working on something that is sort of kind of almost like your project and what you discover about each other over a cup of coffee. You know, that that part is lost and, and I lament that and I hope that we can return to that sometime soon. Um, so that's kind of where we are. That's what I was going to follow up with both of you on, on this. I mean, the idea of the digital fellowship is an important adaptation for these, for these times. At the same time, you know, like you said, Lisa, I mean, a, a lot of research in any field can be solitary, but we also know the, the walk to the lunch place, the walk back from coffee, um, the relationships that develop between archivists, librarians, and researchers. It's a real relationship there, and people who maybe don't know as much about how historical research works. I mean, historians often come into an archive and they're like, okay, um, what do I do? And it, you're relying on the experts who know the materials and who know things that you don't know about. What are some of the ways as you begin to think about how to manage those kinds, that kind of relationship building? that you're thinking you can accomplish remotely. Lisa, let me ask you that first and then sure. and then Patrick, because it's we can't do everything remotely, but maybe we can do more than we thought we could 10 months ago. I, yeah, I think we've surprised ourselves in that respect, Scott. Um, I've certainly, Ben Gross, who's the, the head of our fellowship program, has been very enterprising and um, experimental and that he periodically has Zoom coffee breaks with past and, and current fellows. Um, as I told somebody not long ago, that even if you have been a fellow any time in, in the past 10 years, you never quite escape our clutches. We try to keep in touch with you and we're building up an alumni population. So everyone who, who wishes to join uh, in these coffee breaks is, is certainly welcome. And I think that has helped knit together a closeness and, and a sense of camaraderie and um, a sense that even though we may be working in isolation in our own homes or offices, there are other people out there doing the same thing. 
Uh, we also have, and we had this prior to the shutdown, a works in progress uh, seminar that met once a month and it was open not only to fellows in residence, but any scholar in the, the greater metropolitan region who wanted to come and join in and it was an opportunity for them to share a chapter, an article, something in progress with a group of people who could give them feedback and, and criticism. And, and that again helped foster not only a sense of camaraderie, but helped us build something of an intellectual community, both within and around the library where none used to exist. So I think that we have been able to transfer that activity into the virtual space. It's not exactly the same, but it's not a bad substitute. Patrick, we've been talking about the impact on the researcher, but and uh, you can address that if you like, but I'd also like to hear a little bit about the impact on the staff and what's it been like for staff to cope with this really pretty big change in how they, in how they work. And with an extra question added on about conservation staff, because mm -hmm. when I think about a place like APS, I think about, as you said, materials that go back 300 plus years that stuff can't just sit around. Much of it's being repaired at any at any given time. Can you talk to those issues a little bit? Yeah, um, I can. And actually, uh, um, I, I've been thinking about our, our uh, conversation about the digital fellowships and what it may mean. And I think your question is related to a thought that I've been trying to sort out in my head. And maybe both of you can help me do that. Um, you know, I'm, uh, Let's just imagine the future, um, and let's just say that uh, digital fellowships. It turns out that for three thousand um, dollars, you can see way more material than you ever could have seen in person, and it makes a lot of sense to do those. At the same time, you know, Scott, I spent a lot of time in research libraries, um, you know, working on my books, and I know exactly how important it is to have that intellectual community. But um, and, and so that that is a key part of what a research library is. It's where ideas are exchanged, but the access to the material. Um, our job as librarians, as stewards of these collections, are, are to preserve them, not just provide access, but also preserve. And there's actually a tension in those two, because when you provide access, you're putting these materials at, at risk. Um, so if it is, you know, makes more sense to, to digitize on demand rather than call an 18th century letter that somebody can touch, mm -hmm. I mean, is that an uh, acceptable outcome? And what does that mean for the future of the reading room? Um, if we find that that's, you know, makes a lot more financial sense. I know that didn't answer your question, Scott, but yeah. that's a thought that has come to mind hearing this conversation. Um, not to say that we can't have people still exchange ideas over brown bags, over tables. We might even have more space for that. But, um, you know, is digitization on demand a, a, an acceptable outcome? Do you have to see the stuff to do the, the work? Um, I, Patrick, I, what, you're, what you're both saying is really resonating with a lot of conversations I've had with other scholars mm -hmm. about this whole uh, issue about you know rethinking the humanities more generally and the way we do things and we like to think that we are always looking for best practices but often it does take a shock to take a good hard look at the sort of ideas that we march into research with for history for example that it should be solitary and that you should make a pilgrimage to an archive and if you don't do that then you somehow haven't completed the mission of doing the research and I don't want to put that aside because that's the world I grew up in. At the same time, you're both describing adaptations to the reality of the world we live in, which may also have broader implications for scholars who are working in the global south who can't get to Philadelphia or Kansas City, or um, for scholars who haven't um, had access, um, can't take time off work. Maybe they're not full-time historians or researchers. This opens up a lot of space to talk about access more generally and maybe those conversations weren't having, we weren't having those in such a robust way before the pandemic. That's not even a question, it's just me <laughs> rambling out my thoughts, but I, I, I've enjoyed you know, hearing you both sort of think and you're both experimenting in real time with this. Lisa, anything to that? Well, you know, I'm thinking back to a, a conference that was at APS a couple of years ago that I participated in and, and Pat, a lot of the, the issues that you just mentioned about uh, digital versus genuine article, uh, I, I recall being discussed then. And I remember, I can't remember if this was in a session or a side conversation, but I got into a conversation with somebody about what is the genuine artifact? Mm -hmm. And the person I was speaking with was of a different generation than I am, a younger generation. And I kept arguing that, you know, the digital copy was a copy. It was one generation removed from the, the original. And he kept trying to convince me that 
the digital object was an original object in and of itself, even though it, it was derived from something else. And, and I wasn't really quite buying it, but I can see his point. And I think that, you know, if we want to have these kinds of philosophical conversations, um, we're approaching a point in time where they may be very relevant, you know, to, to our actual work rather than just interesting mind exercises. I want to shift gears a little bit here, if it's okay. We, you know, we, one of the features of the pandemic that we should have seen, that I should have seen come, many of us should have seen coming, it was the degree to which conspiracy thinking would enter disinformation. Um, and it really underlines to me the importance of the stewards of knowledge. And that doesn't mean we all have to agree on one set of facts. That's not the point of a research archive or a library. It's to facilitate critical thinking and deep engagement with the past as we think about the future. And so I wonder if I could hear from both of you about what it's been like to be in your role, basically as a, a person who runs an institution that's committed to advancing knowledge and seeing these kind of daily assaults on really life-saving knowledge around the pandemic. Patrick, can I ask you about that first? Sure. Um, you know, a, a few things come to mind. Um, the um, American Philosophical Society has not issued a, a lot of statements in its uh, history, certainly not in its recent history. Um, but the Council of the Society was, was so moved by, by the moment, um, um, you know, realizing uh, the way in which um, bad information, false information, disinformation um, was uh, affecting the reaction um, that Americans in the, globally had to the pandemic, but Americans in particular. And so in the spring, um, issued a, the first uh, public statement that it's done in, in, in decades, um, basically calling on a re-energized and uh, increased funding for education, um, precisely because um, it, you know, it is so important that facts get out there, that science and knowledge um, are accepted, are, are believed, uh, and people are, have the ability to you know, suss out good information fr from bad. And that was a really dramatic act for the society and I think um, really was, was um, you know, uh, th this moment is, is what really energized people to, to make that statement. Though I think many of them believed it for years uh, already, seeing the changes in the culture. This is the manifestation of, of years of this building building up. Um, the other thing is, and, and Ms. Scott, Lisa, I'd love to hear what you think about this. It's, it's something that I um, have struggled to, 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 to wrap my head around. And that's that you know, we have an incredible collection of the history of science going back to, to Newton who of course, um, nobody's questioned gravity, but most people dismiss alchemy today. Um, so there is you know, science that uh, has uh, persisted in, in bad science, what people call pseudoscience. And I can tell you that you know, what we might call pseudoscience is, is embedded in our collections as well. And what do we do with, with, with pseudoscience? You know, if the society were to mount an exhibition on pseudoscience from Newton to the present, would that undermine science? And yet it is such an important element to understanding how knowledge is developed and changed over time. And, and it's something that I don't know what, what to do with. Um, we talk about it a lot, um, but I, we haven't done anything with it. Lisa, let me throw that over to you. I mean, what, a, what an interesting provocation to not only sort of tackle disinformation in the now, but to also treat that as a historical problem as it's embedded within the archives. Fascinating idea. Well, truly, and we certainly have our share of, of holdings devoted to alchemy. But our starting point is to, to quote the late, great Daniel Patrick Moynihan, you know, everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but not to their own facts. And we we mostly deal in, well, we, we completely deal in science fact. And, you know, one uh, example of that is Darwin and his theory of evolution. And there are people among our supporters at the library who um, would refrain from coming to any program that we held having to anything to do with Darwin or evolution because they believed in intelligent design and creationism. And, and that's fine, they're entitled to it, but we will not be doing any programs about that because we deal in science, you know, the accepted science. Um, and, and after the most previous president um, took office four years ago and seemed to discredit science uh, with great abandon, a lot of people expressed concern to us. And we actually had a, a public 
town hall meeting uh, about this, you know, what's the Linda Hall Library going to do? You know, are you going to feel repressed about collecting science? And, you know, what about the government and, and what are they collecting? And, and there was a great deal of, of anxiety about this. And all we could do was to tell them and reassure people that our commitment to collecting science, you know, proven science um, that could be backed up was solid, it would remain solid into the future, and that we will preserve this information. We will not purge our collections. We will not change our collecting policy. We will continue to, to collect this and, and not collect disinformation uh, unless it served some scholarly purpose to do so. But we would not collect disinformation in place of collecting. Um, yeah, I, I hate to say proven settled science because I don't know that it, it ever is. I, I mean, I'm getting into kind of squishy territory here, but we've been dealing with this anxiety for far longer than the recent pandemic. Well, let's stay with this. And Lisa, let me just bring this back to you for a second, because this is kind of the, the challenge of, of this, too, is the collecting in, in the now. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, research archives um, are tending to the past, but you're also thinking, I mean, everybody's trying to think, what do we need in the archive of this pandemic? And there's a lot of things in there that might not meet that test, Lisa, and I like that test of, about mm -hmm. facts um, and that commitment and not bending to pressure and concern about the government. But that those disinformation moments and the the pandemic and, and conspiracy and all that, that's part of the archive of the now, too, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And uh, one of our reference librarians is, is I mean, we didn't ask her to do this, but she volunteered to do it. She maintains a research guide, which is readily available on our website, that is really documenting the COVID experience in Kansas City. Now, it's mostly devoted to where you can go to find information about getting tested, getting the vaccine, you know, infection rates and all of that. But it, it's become a little bit more comprehensive than that. Um, so we that is pretty much the way we're documenting the pandemic. I think some of the local history collections, the Western Missouri Historical Collection is doing a much more comprehensive job of documenting the experience citywide. Patrick, same question to you. What are the efforts that you have underway to begin an archive of of this time, and you gave a little bit of a clue earlier when you were talking about some of the pieces in the APS collection that were resonant of vaccine disputes from the 18th century, for example. So you, you already have maybe a, a basis for that conversation, but how are you and your staff thinking about the archive of this time? Yeah, um, so I would say uh, where I, our collection has a lot of material from scientists, from doctors, um, and so my goal would be um, to, in 20, 30 years, be able to recruit the papers of some of the scientists who are on the front lines uh, today, uh, whether they were um, contributing uh, to public policy, whether they're contributing to um, you know, vaccine uh, and experimentation. Um, uh, that, that is where I would see our collecting going. So in some ways, you know, we're not um, really equipped and our strength is not in collecting, say, you know, um, there are a lot of places out there that are collecting all the, what we would call ephemera, you know, um, maybe there's a series of tweets, maybe there's web announcements, they're archiving those and those need to be archived. That's not our strong suit. And one of the things as an archive is you have to understand where your strengths are and, and build upon them. So I see, um, you know, we have to be mindful of this moment and realize that, you know, right now we can't get the papers of scientists who are actively working in the field but to be aware of who's out there and to hope in 20 or 30 years that the strength of our card collection will attract those papers uh, to ours. I wanna, uh, there's a question that's come in. We've had a couple of comments and questions and lively conversation going on on Twitter. Cheryl Knott is asking about finding aids being important. This comes back to some of the points we were talking about earlier. I don't know if either one of you wanna take on this question. She's wondering if you're experimenting with or rethinking how to make finding aids as informative and accessible as possible. That's been one of our biggest um, investments in, in remote work. Um, the, our head of manuscripts processing, um, someone named Val Lutz, um, was able to uh, digitize all of the handwritten or uh, typewritten um, uh, guides, indexes to our manuscript collections, many of which were not yet on the website, but were in the boxes. So if you call the box, you get all the information you really need. Um, now we're able to, uh, you know, our, our archivists are taking those and turning them into finding aids, almost item level finding aids. 
Um, and more generally, one of the really interesting things about research libraries separate from, from the pandemic is the, what I see is the shifting role of finding aids in terms of, of research. Um, sometimes our finding aid might contain a biographical note of a, of a scientist, and it might be the most thorough and researched um, you know, biographical background note on the scientist out there, more than anything that had been printed before. This is something that's been worked in the 1980s or 1990s. And that archivist has done the most research in this person's work. And we're increasingly finding our finding aids are being cited as um, sources in people's work, which I think is great. But it also raises the question to us about how we archive our own material. Because if somebody cites a finding aid as it is in, in, 19, you know, in, in 2021, and then somebody edits it in five or six years, uh, we want to be able to preserve that, uh, that change in, in some ways. Thanks for that question. Cheryl, we have a few minutes left. Uh, there's another issue. I just wanted to circle back and maybe we can, if there's any other thoughts that you have about it, Lisa wanted to ask you about this. Just about um, this, the, the staff, your staff, you, and you've talked throughout this conversation about, you know, communication and closing in six hours and the tension and the, and the stress. I'd like to just hear a little bit more about that. I think about that a lot in the higher ed environment and, and my, you know, the faculty in the department um, where I was at Drexel. And you know, a lot of times people are are if we are working remotely, we don't get that water cooler conversation, and so it's harder to check in on people and know how they're doing. As a leader of an institution like Linda Hall, how have you approached that? Uh, it it's been a process, and uh, we've had a number of all staff meetings. Uh, even now that we're all back in the building, I mean, for all intents and purposes, we're back. We are open for public service on a limited basis. So we're really, we're back. But uh, we are still doing all of our staff meetings via Zoom, even if we're next door to each other. We try not to inhabit the same spaces if we can possibly uh, manage otherwise. But during the months of closure, we had a lot of all staff meetings that were on Zoom. Um, seemed to, it, not a replacement for the, the real thing, but seemed to be better than nothing. And I know that I was in a lot more frequent contact with a lot of staff members that I'm not necessarily in frequent contact with, just to reassure them and let them know that, that they are on my mind. I am thinking about them and that we were using the time to plan for our return in a safe manner and that I would not let anybody back into the building unless I was convinced that it was 100% safe for them to come back. And uh, during the time we were shut down, uh, our air filtration system was upgraded to hospital quality air filters. And we laid in supplies of, of personal protective equipment, whether some people needed it or not. And anything anybody wanted to make them feel safe and comfortable, we provided for them. So a lot of my time was um, trying to bolster people's spirits and to make them feel secure enough that I would not ask them to do anything I was unwilling to do myself. And I think that that investment of my time in their welfare um, paid off big time. I think it made us actually stronger as a staff. Patrick, I'd like to hear some of the same, you know, issues, how you address those. You know, I mean, it was a very similar situation uh, in which, you know, we needed to make and assure staff that we were taking all the precautions necessary. It required a lot of um, shifting of offices to give people the space that they wanted. Um, a lot of investment in, as uh, Lisa said, we invested in an entirely new um, uh, HVAC system, uh, greater filtration. Um, all these changes that, that I think are good things. And uh, you know, our staff are very comfortable coming back. We've had to close back down, but for that moment, people felt really, really, really comfortable. And that was important. But then I, I was thinking again to, to Scott's comment about um, the need for you know, fellows to be in, in person. I also think about all the, the things that the serendipity um, that, that staff experienced by working in the same building, because um, we we're split up by departments. You know, we're split up by what we, where we work and, we, and who we report to and our supervisors. Um, so there's so much serendipity that happens in the hallways. It happens at the lunch table. So, you know, if you're in the processing department, you learn about what the catalogers are doing or what the conservation department's doing. And that type of stuff that just happens in the course of business has really gone away. And, and one of the things, you know, we've learned so much about how we can work remotely and be productive remotely, but there is still, still so much that you, as a staff, as, a, as an organization that you get by being in person. You know, I can't wait to have my office open again so we can have a, a social hour in my office with all the staff again just talking um, we can't do that on zoom you know we, we've tried 
and it's okay, but it's just not the same. Um, and so um, I'm really looking forward to having that serendipity come back into the office place. Just want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, except for tomorrow when you catch COVID Calls at 4 p.m. Eastern Time for the second of our conversations in partnership with the American Philosophical Society and Linda Hall Library. Please do join me for that. And the topic tomorrow is biomedicine in the archives, and we'll be talking with two really extraordinary researchers and scholars, Joanna Radin and Robin Wolf Scheffler. So please do join us tomorrow for that at four o'clock. And I just want to take this moment to thank Lisa Brower and Patrick Spiro. Uh, I know how hard you think about these issues and wanting to serve researchers and your own staff. And it's, it's really impressive, frankly, to have this opportunity to be with you and hear it from you in person. Thanks for your time. Thank, thank you, Scott. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow, four o'clock.